I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. This is part one of two of a actually super special series. I just went and re-listened to it. It's probably some of the best work I've done in a long time. And I did it originally for the MIT Enterprise Forum on political polarization and media technologies. How is technology driving political polarization? Um, this touches on some stuff from Wedge, but expands on it dramatically. Uh, and I think you're going to love it, especially those of you who have been kind of into my more like kind of structural theoretical stuff as of late. So uh, enjoy here an hour-long mega episode um, based on this work I did with the MIT Enterprise Forum called Media Technology's Role in Polarization Beyond Just Twitter is Bad. Enjoy. watching this is already our third MIT Enterprise Forum community stream of the month which I think is a new record third yeah. time this month um, and we're really excited to have Eric Fogg joining us today who's an alum from MIT <laughs> um, and I'm gonna uh, do a brief introduction of Eric but of course you know take it away after that Eric and you sure. know we can go from there and as you all know this is a very casual forum. Uh, we welcome all of you, hope you're doing well, and please feel free to send in any questions as we go. Um, so by way of brief introduction, um, Eric Eric Fogg is head at Reconsider Media, um, co-host of the Reconsider podcast and author of Wedged, how you became a tool of the partisan political establishment and how to start thinking for yourself again. It's a bit of a mouthful, yeah. I <laughs> know, I love it. Um, and also very relevant for today. Um, uh, he's been researching and speaking about political polarization and tribalism since 2013, uh, and his experience living in different geographies, uh, both blue and red, sparked his mission to create a real dialogue that cuts through the noise. Yeah. Um, Eric has a master's degree in political science from MIT and spent years working with various NGOs, Harvard, MIT, the UN, and various private advocacy groups. Um, he's ghostwritten published books, and he's now running a software startup. And today, he is our guest of honor. So welcome, Eric, again. We're really glad to have you. Um, and please feel free to take it away with any more intro comments or with your presentation, Any anything that you would like. <laughs> cool. Um, I, what I... Uh, part of what I want to say is 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 my my claim to fame is that I was into political polarization before it was cool. Mm. Um, so back in 2014, I think we like we didn't see coming what like 
what has kind of what what sort of started to come to a head in 2016 and then has like just kept rolling these last four years um and and so i get the opportunity to talk about this today because a little bit like i'm i don't know i'm 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 your um uh i'm your dime i'm your dime store nate silver right where like you know nate called obama in 2014 and and people said okay so what did you do and Mm -hmm. um and so i've had the opportunity to talk a lot about the conventional causes of broader political polarization in the United States. I'm actually not going to cover that today. I'm going to talk about media technology specifically and how it gets up here for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as the title may uh, may allude to, you know, I think we all know like ah, Twitter's kind of a cesspit. Facebook's kind of you know, Facebook's kind of a cesspit, and, the, and that these are bad. Um, but I think this story is actually way more interesting and complicated than that. Um, in particular, because we can't put the genie back in the bottle. So, um, you know, so where do we go from here? And I think it requires understanding this, this all a little bit better. So, so uh, the only other thing I want you to know about me is that I love the United States. I am like an unapologetic patriot. Um, and that has been a big, you know, that, that like love of country has been a big part of driving me to figure out how I wanted to help it. Um, which you know influenced where what I decided to study. Here's my book. Here's uh, here's the podcast that I've been running, and um, uh, and I've I've learned a lot actually. You know I wrote Wedge in 2014, and we've learned a lot since then. I need to send an updated version at some point. But one thing that's evolved a lot since 2014 is social media. Um, and in in 2014, we were starting to see some early hints of it, but we didn't know about like Russian bots and and things like that, which we're actually going to cover today. Um, and so this is a great opportunity to like share some new stuff that we've been cooking up over at Reconsider in terms of research. This is not me presenting a research paper. This is a lot of high level ideas about how we got to this, right? And what I want you to see here coming out of this is that we have in our country some radically different narratives about reality, which feels very different, and and it is um, very different from, say, the 1990s, where we said, okay, X is a problem, we agree it's a problem, we've got the conservative solution, we've got the liberal solution, and we, we fight over who has the best solution. Today, the reason things are different is because we have different views of reality. Um, even so far as there is a you know, small but substantial portion of people that think the coronavirus isn't real, right? Even though it's killed 220,000 Americans. Um, and, that, and that conspiracy thinking like this, and we'll get into a few left-wing conspiracy theories too. I'm not just gonna beat up on the right, but conspiracy thinking like this has actually gained greater foothold in the United States. Um, and if for those who know the wedge thesis, which is very much the tail wags the dog, this is really important um, because folks like this have a lot of in, have an outsized level of influence in our politics because of the, the primary system we have. Um, the other way that we have the yeah the other way that we can see this divergent narrative in our country is that over time, starting since 1994, and, I, and again, this is, a, this is an image from the book, the antipathy between the parties has gone up. So we believe in different realities, and we also believe that the other side are monstrous. These numbers are now over 50% that Republicans and Democrats see the other party as a threat to the nation's well-being. 
Right. And so when Hillary Clinton said like half of Trump supporters are a basket of deplorables, she was speaking for a lot of people. Right. It was a gaffe. It was a bad idea um, to say it. But a lot of people were thinking it. And um, and we see the we've seen the rhetoric between conservatives and liberals change from they're dumb to they're bad people. Um, This is hugely dangerous for a democracy because dumb you can fix bad you can't right right like how did we defeat the nazis we bombed them until there weren't enough of them to resist anymore um it's a very very hard problem to fix bad and uh and if we are all convinced that the problem is that half of the country are evil we're in a lot of trouble so i want to get into how this happened to contrast this, um, this is this is really important. We're going to take a pause for a minute and talk about some issues where Americans, when polled, show over seventy percent support of something. So seventy percent of Americans support the following things: universal health care, a path to citizenship for undocumented migrants, aggressive climate action, um, certain forms of gun control, but not others. Um, in fact, the, you get that same kind of seventy percent that there are certain forms of gun control everyone's against. Uh, uh, it's even, it has until recently even been true with uh, Roe v. Wade, right? Just persistently 70% of Americans didn't want to overturn it. And this is shocking because we can't seem to agree on anything. Um, and it certainly seems like we have this, this half and half sitting here that feel very differently about this. Um, one thing that, again, I've, I'm touching back on wedged a little bit, but one thing that continues to be true about American political polarization is that the polarization is defined by hate and by consistent alignment with a tribe as opposed to with extremist ideologies. So there are extremist ideologies. They've always been there. They're louder now. Um, But most Americans haven't become extreme. Most Americans remain actually pretty steadfast with the policy positions that they've had with a bit of evolution since 2008. So how can this be happening? Um, And I have to give you the many clauses disclaimer, right? Any good political scientist, any good political science paper is going to have like 18 interconnected causes and say that's incomplete. We're going to talk about one big one, which is uh, media, which is uh, political media. So the most obvious place we can start is we can look at, you know, like uh, over here on the left is Fox and the New York Post about Hunter Biden and, and, um, you know, how uh, there's a big cover up for Joe Biden's cerebral corruption. And then we've actually got something from Salon over here um, that, you know, the Hunter Biden smear has been crushed. And so if you're on the right, if you're like embedded in right wing media, you are absolutely convinced that like Hunter and Joe Biden are involved in this like, you know, Burisma, um, uh, Ukraine corruption, you know, deeply corrupt thing. Um, and that, you know, for some reason, Hunter Biden like flew a laptop to Delaware from LA to get it fixed. And that ended up in Rudy Giuliani's hands. Um, and if you're on the left, you believe that this is a hoax, right? Quite literally a hoax. Um, and, uh, and that there's absolutely no validity to it. Um, interestingly, I, I caught this while I was looking around that, you know, media gatekeeping is a thing that's actually, and we're going to talk about why, has actually declined in time. Like it used to be that the media would generally agree, we've got some rules about whether we're going to publish something, it has to be um, a certain level of credible. And that's, that's largely gone away. And now we're fighting between the New York Times and Fox News over whether that even exists. Part of why that's happening is that over time, if you look at that graph on the right, 
the like moder- the the kind of wide spanning national news networks of ABC, CBS, and NBC have been in constant decline. Um, so we're not seeing this kind of broad appeal, middle of the road news. As um, cable TV came around and as um, online news came around, it became easier and easier to create niche news that split people up like any good capitalist system, right, or market system into these niches that you would market to. And so as our options proliferated, we started moving towards, you know, these like very specific sources of news that made us feel good, that told us what we wanted to hear. Um, and of course, you can start to see through this proliferation of media sources, um, which comes fundamentally because the cost of creating media has gone down. Um, you can you can see how easy it is to start to get into an echo chamber right away. We do the same thing in social media. Um, you know, uh, I can just kind of hand wave the word algorithms, but um, about how you know if we hit like on something, we're going to see more content like that. Um, so we get deeper into this into this bubble of what we see. Um, and we also, it turns out if we're actually quite partisan, we just block people who are saying stuff we don't like anyway. So we curate our own um, our own world. And so more, you know this is this is kind of a, a monkey's paw situation where we wanted more options and we got it, and it's been bad for us. Um, social media is also where we see a lot of fake news getting shared, right? So again, the cost to be able to develop media has gone down. And now the cost to distribute that, the barrier to distribute that media has gone down. Back in the day, you could create your own news website, you know, saying whatever, but nobody would come. With social media, if you can hack into how people, um, into what makes people want to share stuff, and it's all anger and fear, right? If you can hack into that pretty well, you can get broad appeal. And so people, you know, and so we see fake news being shared across social media. It's about two to one conservatives versus liberals doing it. So, you know, liberals don't pat yourself on the back yet. You share 33% of all fake news. Um, the more partisan people are, the more they share fake news and they more believe, the more they believe real news that disagrees with them is fake news, um, even though it's real. And the older people are, the more that happens. And now we're gonna get into the fun part because I'm sure you guys have all seen this uh, this email, right? It's the Nigerian prince asking for money so we can give you 4 million, right? And we all chuckle a little bit because nobody could ever fall for that. Well, people did fall for it. They were older people. And scammers have gotten a little bit more sophisticated. You might wonder where I'm going with this. You will see in a minute. They've gotten a little more sophisticated. Look, it's the Department of the Treasury emailing you. You need to give us a delivery fee of $50 to get something, right? And people fall for this, but it tends to be older people. Zoomers do not give money to Nigerian princes. Grandma and grandpa do, right? So why is that? Well, it turns out that the way that we absorb information isn't through reason and thoughtfulness and research. Nobody does research, right? I barely, no, that's not true. I do research, but nobody does research when they're reading news. You, you, you go to sources that seem trustworthy, that have the clothing of trust and authority. That is when we. That is what makes us decide that something is credible. So you look back here, like, wow, the Department of the Treasury must be really important. Now, young people who are more tech savvy, they know just because someone says they're from the Department of the Treasury doesn't mean they are. But think of Grandma back in the day. If she got a letter with letterhead from the Department of Treasury, take it seriously. And so she's been conditioned over time to see, ah, yes, this very official-looking letterhead is a sign that this is a, is a stamp of authority that, that I should pay attention to this thing and that it's real. 
If you guys are familiar with the Milgram experiment, this was in the 1950s. They, they, uh, they put up, there were random dudes that put on lab coats and said, it's fine, just go ahead and shock this person with deadly levels of um, electricity. And people did it because, because they saw the lab coats and they said, okay, you know what you're doing, you're authoritative, I'm gonna trust you, right? So we can literally, by putting on a lab coat, convince people to do deadly things to each other because we tell them it's okay. This is how we absorb information by getting it from sources that seem credible. So what happens now is, you know, if something looks like, if we look on the left, like this looks like it's a real newspaper, right? And so like your parents grew up, like there were only so many newspapers, there was a high barrier to creating those newspapers. And so you had some editorial standards. Um, and that meant that we can trust what was in the newspapers. So you can read this and be like, wow, Christmas is banned because of the Muslims? Holy smokes, right? You immediately think it's true because it's in a newspaper, um, especially if you're older um, or you tend to think that way. Same thing here. I remember actually getting this forward. It's this, it's these, um, it's like a forwards from grandma kind of thing. It was from my grandma and it was um, an email chain claiming that uh, Obama had built this like beautiful prison that looks suspiciously like a hotel in Cook County with your taxpayer dollars, right? And it turns out they were pictures of a hotel that someone just said was a prison, right? And so why does this work? Well, think about how we grew up learning before the internet. We had textbooks that had pictures and captions. We had news that had pictures and captions. And the people that had access that, you know, again, high barrier to entry to be able to create this stuff, the people that had access to be able to put pictures and captions in front of us had editorial standards and strong research teams. So we were conditioned to believe them, right? And so you still have a generation of people that there's a fairly high probability of them that if they see a picture and a caption and it says something that they like, their brain is gonna go, this is probably credible because it fits the same format. It has the right clothes. Same thing happens on social media. So here we have this Twitter account, people for justice. Ooh, yeah, right? I like justice. Missouri News US, that sounds very American, um, telling me, you know, there's no way Hillary could win. Okay. And then we have LGBT United. I like LGBT people. I support them. That's good. That's like me. Those people are like me. They value what I value. And look how much they love Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's buff, right? This is great. Well, it turns out eh, Russia. Both of these are Russian, are, are two of thousands and thousands and thousands of Russian bots or Russian, um, they're not actually, some of them are bots. So the, the people who like and share them are bots. And by the way, the bots look like, you know, the bots are like dudes with, you know, camo and guns, right? Or they're like, you know, they've got colored hair and lattes. Um, it's all, so the Russians have figured out, like we can just put the most basic clothing around stuff on social media, not that looks authoritative, but that looks like me and stuff I care about, put it in front of us and we'll start agreeing with it and we'll start sharing it. And it's a great way to spread misinformation. If people like me think this is true, it's probably true, our brains say. So the Russians are like, we're just gonna create a bunch of fake people that look like a bunch of people in America and hack the election. So. The good news is this is not new. This is as old as the printing press. Um, so I've actually got a picture here. It looks very authoritative, doesn't it? It's a completely different incident from what I'm about to describe, but it, it gets the idea across. One of the first uses of the printing press was to was for an ang a pissed off Italian merchant who had like had a bad deal with someone who was Jewish 
to print uh, a pamphlet saying that, oh, Jews are performing um, midnight blood rite rituals with the, the Christian baby blood. Um, and this is bad, right? And they had an engraving, right? Very authoritative looking um, and spread it around. And of course, people until then, if they saw something written down, it was either from the church or the king, right? Very authoritative. And so they read this and they're like, holy Somalians, Jews are sacrificing Christian babies to the devil. We got to do something about this. So they killed 600 of them, right? So one of the very first uses of the printing press was fake news. And people freaked out about it way worse than Pizzagate. So this is a problem that's old as the hills. We, of course, know about yellow journalism, right? This is a big problem in the United States in the 19, 19, early 1900s. We're just seeing the same cycle happen again. So what changed, right? Why does it feel new? Well, what changed was we started seeing a consolidation of uh, these printing houses into, so on the left is um, uh, Penguin Random House, on the right, Wall Street Journal. You started having, and like, look, look how solid those buildings look, right? And that's a big part of it. Um, you had this consolidation into these groups that had um, editorial standards that were published, right? That they shared with other competitors as well. They're like, we're all gonna have the same editorial standards here. And they had a clearinghouse. They're like, you can't publish this shit, right? This is crazy. So these clearinghouses emerged because we couldn't trust what we read and we got tired of it. And so we started buying stuff from people who said, here's all the work we're putting in to make sure you can trust what you read or what you read. And there's a reason the Wall Street Journal has this hard granite look to it, right? It, it, there Because when they came about, they came about in this time where newspapers were desperate for authority because people had lost, uh, lost rightly so, lost faith that they could trust what they read. And so the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, guys like that, they said, we're doing things in a new way so you can trust what you read. Same with Penguin Random House. Um, and so there's this new frontier, of course. Um, and so that's how we solved the problem back then. Part of the new frontier in addition to social media is we used to have stuff like Nova, right? Nova was like scientists doing stuff and you had like, you know, kind of weird computer graphics explaining these like cool far out space things and we could trust it. Well, conspiracy theorists use the same kind of look and feel and clothing to convince you that aliens built the pyramid so that 9-11 didn't happen, right? Because we grew up with Nova and these kind of documentaries where trusted people with clearinghouses for information had the right to publish this stuff. What happened was the barrier to be able to create this went down, YouTube came about, filming things became easier, CGI became easier. And so this stuff looks credible to us. These kinds of videos, they interview people who claim to be experts, right? They've got a PhD in something from somewhere. Um, and so it looks very credible. So we're more prone to believe it. And that's part of why um, conspiracy theories are spreading in the United States. It's why it's easy to get people to think that vaccines are bad for you, right? Or that the coronavirus isn't real. Um, and so there's this, there's this key trend that's been going on since the printing press that what happens is you introduce a new media technology that lowers the barrier to communicating a, in a formally restricted way. That restriction, the restriction was the source of the authority, was the source of our trust because you only had a few people that could do it and they had some sort of standard or clearinghouse. Suddenly the barrier for everyone being able to do that, whether it's YouTube or you know, the printing press drops and they can say whatever they want and fool us. But it only happens for a while. Just like Zoomers aren't gonna, aren't gonna give money to the Nigerian prince, 
the next generation isn't going to fall for the same, you know, LGBT united, but actually Russia telling us to vote for Bernie Sanders. So this happens generationally. It takes time for us to grow up knowing to be skeptical of something and be conditioned in a different way. Um, ah, yeah, that second thing, that consolidation is the second step of that. So over time, what happens is people get fed up with it, like yellow journalism, and they start to demand journalistic standards because it's so bad that they just can't, that they're just sick of it. And they're going to stop reading. They're going to stop consuming until these journalistic standards come up. So they do. So we're seeing that already with social media. So Facebook introduced fact checkers. Facebook has been hemorrhaging people, right? Hemorrhaging users. Um, now they've got some diehard users that love to share conspiracy theories, but people don't trust, people are starting to catch on. You can't trust what you read on Facebook and they're getting sick of it. So Facebook is responding with some journalistic standards. Twitter has a new thing called Birdwatch, um, which is an attempt to use like AI to try to figure out if stuff is BS or not. Um, and so we're even, these same, this same cycle is repeating itself now. We're starting to see these journalistic standards emerge in order to fix the core problem of people can just read whatever they want. And in particular now, through all these feedback algorithms, go deep down this rabbit hole of one narrative um, at the expense of all others. The only thing that's really scary about this is we go, okay, so just give it time, right, Eric? Well, technology is advancing at a faster rate than it used to. And it may be that new stuff such as deep fakes, right? Which like whole new ball game, right? This is a video that MIT made of Richard Nixon reading his backup speech for if the Apollo 11 dudes all died, right? You need to see this video. It is shockingly compelling. If you like went to an uncontacted tribe in the Amazon rainforest and said, watch this video. When we sent people to the moon, they died. Um, they would be like, holy smokes, that's terrible because this is so compelling. Um, and so this, the, uh, the, with stuff like defect technology and other AI emerging, the ability to deceive again is emerging faster than generations are turning over. And so what that means is the future is a little bit scary. Because what happens when you don't have this generational buffer to build up this kind of immunity to BS, um, it's not clear. We can, we can talk a little bit about it, but I know I've chewed up a little bit too much time. Um, I, wanted that to, I wanted that to set us all up for this conversation. Absolutely. Um, wow. So that was, that was fun, actually, but also definitely eye-opening for sure. And thank you for... Mm talking us through the history of sort of um, not only fake news, but also the the use, I guess, of technology as we're gonna talk about today and the media and its role in sort of propagating these things out there <laughs> that may or may not be true. Uh, looks like maybe not to be true for a long, um, for, for a good proportion of the you know content that's out there. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot to dig into, but I think we're going to kick it off with um, your personal motivations, actually, and, and given your background, what uh, what kind of led you to to create Reconsider Media, actually, and, and what was the, the thought behind making it formal that you want to make this organization? <laughs> sure. Um, you, you kind of alluded to it, and I guess I like having the bio somewhere, the whole red state, blue state thing, because um, I, I grew up in a very red part of Pennsylvania. Rural farm town. I grew up hunting. I still own guns. Um, I, you know, I went to church, and everyone in my church was like super nice, and they really cared about people. And like, you know, we we'd spend time like going and like 
you know, we, who, you know, the church would be like, Hey, next Saturday, who wants to go to the food bank? Right. Or like me. Right. And, and so I was like, wow, these like, you know, like my people, they're really great. They're really nice. And of course, where I was, people would say those liberals, they're bad yeah. news. I was like, yeah. Oh, really? You know, I'm six. I'm like, really? Tell yeah. me more. Um, they're like, yeah, they want to destroy it. They want to take away your gun rights. Mm -hmm. They hate religion. Um, which look what, look at all this good that their religion's doing. Right. Um, sure. uh, you know, and, and some stuff got ridiculous, right? There were people that are like, they want to make you gay. But yeah. but some of the stuff was also just like, you know, they want to tax you more. They want to give money. Look how hard all these people around you work, these farmers. They want to take their money and give it to people who don't work. And I'm like, wow, that's bad, right? And so you have this, you know, and of course all the liberals on the line are like, yawn. You know, I've heard this a thousand times before. Um, and it's such horse hockey, right? Because, because, you know, you're so much more sophisticated than that. And you have like real thoughts and you're not a caricature. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. I was like, wow, liberals are really bad. And then I went to MIT, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, possibly the most liberal city in the country, yeah. right? Currently fighting with like Portland and Seattle. Um, and I got there and like, I really like them too. Cause like, they're really smart. Right. And you know, like that MIT folks and, and kind of everyone around them, they're like, they're really smart and they're like worldly and sophisticated. And they like, they like to travel and they like new things, not just doing the same damn thing all the time. And I was like, oh, you guys are really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when I started to learn a little bit more about like, well, why might we want to give money to people who aren't currently working or why might we want to restrict gun control um, or gun, or, you know, certain forms of gun ownership and access. Um, and when I was there, uh, I was like the apologist for conservative America, right? Because they were, of course, they'd been like those conservatives, right? They want to kill you because you're gay. Right. And I was like, we don't want to, we don't want to kill anyone. Yeah. Um, and or like, you know, those conservatives, like they just want, uh, you know, they're just owned by the gun lobby, right? Like the NRA just tells them what to think. I'm like, oh, you know, come on. Um, and, and so I started to realize like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like you guys are really smart, but you're caricaturing people too, right? You just think like conservatives are all like one stripe and they're just like super dumb and hickish and racist and misogynist and they hate, all, hate you know, it's like, that's not true either. Um, and then I got to like bounce around the country and actually the North America, my first job from like Alberta to Nova Scotia, to Illinois, to Alabama, to California, to all sorts of places. I just met all these people from different walks of life, like CEOs and like frontline factory workers. And I started to put together like, wow, like people are really complicated. And especially in this, like this country and this continent, people are really diverse, yeah. right? Um, like it's hard to pin down what is a liberal, right? Yeah. You can, if you're thinking of a character, you think one in your mind like they got dyed hair they're drinking lattes right um but like you know there was this like gruff dude with like with a motorcycle in a factory that i worked at and like you know and he was a diehard democrat and um and you know went to church every sunday right i was like that's surprising i thought liberals were all atheists right um and so you start to see like oh my gosh like you can slice people so many different ways that like even just saying liberal conservative like it's 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 a bad model of humans so anyway i i was so sick of having the same argument over and over again yeah. um because the one thing that's that's pretty universal about us is we stereotype the hell out of each other right? yeah <laughs> um that's probably the common thread and so i just got sick of having the same argument again so i decided to write it down yeah and mm -hmm. then it kind of like ran away from me so yeah yeah Seven years later, here we are. 
Wow. And that's how Reconsider Media was born. That's, yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. And yeah, that is fascinating. You probably saw a bunch of things as you were crisscrossing <laughs> the, the continent. Um, but I, I agree with you. Um, I myself am sadly, or, you know, by choice have stayed mostly on the East Coast, I will say. And um, yeah, and, and that's what I know. But I think you're right on the money that the, the othering and sort of the generalizing is, is all across everywhere, no, no matter who you are. Yeah. And um, yeah, I like your point about um, like humans being 3D kind of complex beings, right? Like, I don't think we live in a world anymore where there is such a one dimensional person for, yeah, yeah, so. And yeah. interestingly, from what we can understand, the multiplicity, they're like different micro tribes within the left and the right are actually more diverse and more wild than they've been in the past, even though it looks like monoliths fighting each other. Um, it's easy to see from the inside. Like, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're like, we're not monoliths, yeah. right? Like, we just had a war about this. Right. And, you know, but the Republicans are like, oh, yeah, well, like, I've heard, I've seen some, like, you know, out of context quotes from Bernie Sanders and, and um, Alexander, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and so all Democrats think that way, right? And like Joe Biden must think that way too. So like, you know, when, when Donald Trump is like, yes, Joe Biden is a Trojan horse for the radical progressives, like there are people who really believe that, right? He's not just, you know, he's, again, he's, he's saying stuff that, that falls on eager ears because of this monolith thing that we do. Right, right. Yeah. And um, the, the role of, uh, so I was, um, I was not a psychology major, but I did take some courses in undergrad and the role of confirmation bias and the fact that, you know, everybody holds biases for whatever reason we accumulate them. But the fact that we don't, um, I think people are either unwilling or um, afraid of being self-critical maybe, or you're, or changing their minds is seen as a weakness or something like that, where you, you know, it gets stuck and you dig in and then you keep going. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So circling back, actually, um, to some of the slides that you presented, um, there was a, I, I found it interesting towards the end, you know, when the, the introduction of this concept of fact checking and um, the tools and various AIs, I guess, that are being used by tech, tech companies to fact check on social media. Um, would you say that is a form of censorship or a violation of free speech? Ooh. Okay. Well, certainly a lot of people would say that, right? Uh -huh. You, um, uh, 
Is it a violation? So there's actually, yeah, you're asking two different questions that often sound like the same question. One of them is, is it censorship? Yeah. And is it a violation of free speech? Mm -hmm. And in short, I would say one, yes, two, no. Okay. So sure. why? Um, so if you want to, you know, obviously if you want to publish a book, um, you say like, you know, I want to publish a book that says 9-11 didn't happen. Oh. HarperCollins is going to be like, no. Like you can go write it down still. Like nobody's going to throw you in jail, but like we're not going to publish your 9-11 your didn't happen book, dingus. And, um, you know, and so I think like, you start to go from like threading a very thin needle to actually seeing a principle emerge where you say, okay, well, it's not that you're not allowed to say it. It's that you just can't say it on our platform. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, okay, but aren't they like a public good or something like that? It's like, well, yes, so are newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't have to publish anything that anyone says. Mm -hmm. um, but, but wait a minute, Eric, like this is me and what I have to say, and it's my Twitter account. Mm -hmm. um, and you can start to see, well, to some extent, is like how much is your Twitter account like you standing on your property shouting, which like by the way, you can't even do, right? You can't just shout as loud as you want on your property because you got neighbors and they have a right to not be shouted at all the time. And so, like, you know, and so you have the right to say whatever you want, but the context always matters, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and everyone else doesn't have to give you a platform for what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, your own house can't even be a platform for what you want, your own blog can. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and why can your own blog be that in part because, well, you built the platform. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's not, and it doesn't have any like negative externalities on anyone else. So with Twitter, what they're doing is, so the reason I think, the reason I think like, you see, so you, you're, you're in this like halfway space, which is why this is complicated. You're not petitioning someone to, you know, who owns the platform and ultimately decides what gets written. Um, you know, because with the newspaper, the editorial board is responsible for everything. Yeah. Right. If it goes out, the editorial board approved it, which is not the case with Twitter. Twitter does not approve everything that goes out. Twitter and Facebook are selectively unapproving things, which starts to sound like, you know, it's different, mm -hmm. but they've restricted what they are. They're trying to restrict what they are. Um, flagging as um, not even false statements, mm -hmm. but sharing false, um, like sharing links to false statements, mm -hmm. right? So I can say COVID is a hoax. Mm -hmm. Twitter's not going to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. But if I bring up the, I don't know, whatever, whatever like Russian site that says COVID is a hoax, they will say, oh, hold on, that's actually just not true. Okay. Um, and so I think the reason there's a, so it's certainly censorship, right? And, and any editorial, any editorial work is censorship, any clearinghouse is a form of censorship, um, just what it is. And, um, but the form of censorship that they are restricting themselves to is not restricting what you can say, but they are, but they are saying, if you share something that an independent, you know, and the independent part is part of the problem, right? But like, let's, let's assume they're independent. These fact checkers say like, this is clearly sharing something that's false, or this, this website clearly is, is claiming something that's false. We're just going to make sure that people can't go to the website. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, and so by this like weird roundabout way, they're not sensing what you can say. Right. Right. They're going after these outside websites that aren't you. Um, you can say coronavirus is a hoax all you want. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not a violation of free speech for a couple of those key reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
uh, yeah, of course, like, you know, uh, when, you know, when newspapers, um, you know, it's sort of like newspapers have always had to grapple with this when people are like, well, public, you know, like, I don't know, like, it's, it's almost like the poor libertarians being like, can we get on the debate stage? And everyone's like, no, you can't, right? Too bad. Um, and so, and so it's, it, it is certainly the case of like, whenever there is a platform that can amplify something, um, I think it is a natural, th I think it is a natural thing for censorship to emerge. I don't think it's a violation of the First Amendment for that matter. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And I mean, to that first point about sort of, let's say someone, you know, posts on their Twitter, COVID is a hoax. Is that, uh, I guess, strictly speaking, would that be defined as an opinion then by, by Twitter as opposed to a, a fact? <laughs> It gets murky. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to learn a little bit more about specifically Birdwatch. Um, the, what they're doing specific, the reason they're like doing this, this link thing is that, um, is ultimately because links to these news sites, and they're often just like fly by night, you know, just same thing with like the, the like Russian Facebook group, right? Um, they're there with an agenda, they're fly by night, they make a bunch of false old content. Right. Um, and so what, what Twitter is doing is, is, um focusing only on they're not even they're not even trying to tell the difference between a fact and opinion um because you can share whatever false facts you want like if i write two plus two equals five on twitter they're not going to do anything about it, right mm -hmm. um and so they're focusing specifically on these like external sources of misinformation which which like makes the thing super interest well sorry makes the thing super murky um when I say the thing, I mean, makes trying to create a policy about where exactly you draw the line a little bit murky, but I think it was a clever choice to yeah. say, we're only going to restrict this to external sources, whether we preview them and let you click through to them or not. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it lets them get out of having to play the what is a fact versus what is an opinion game. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and actually, just uh, related to that, exact topic we have a question already from our audience um oh, great. yeah and so um uh, our audience member would like to know what legislation if any would you write to regulate and combat fake news proliferation on social media sites Ooh. good <laughs> question yeah. um yeah. i don't have a well-developed answer on this so i'm gonna blag a little bit but like please everyone do not take it too seriously um ultimately you know, what's interesting is ultimately um, there is very little legislation on say newspapers, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's quite limited and, and very much not about it is illegal for this newspaper to publish something that some government body declares as a lie. Mm -hmm. So why do I bring that up? It's because using legislation to to censor is like super fraught mm. um and and is very possibly a violation of the first amendment is part of the problem now there are the supreme court has ruled in a number of ways that the government can get involved with this mm. um you know firing a crowded theater type thing as long as there's no fire right and um or threats or anything like that right so stuff that puts people's personal safety at risk so what's interesting is you might get to the point, you might get, now I don't think you're gonna do it with this court, with the Supreme Court, but you might get an interpretation that says, well, telling people that wearing masks is actually bad for you is equivalent to yelling fire in a crowded theater. In fact, it probably gets more people killed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And so can we, you know, like, can we use that, both that moral justification, because I think we have to live with it, um, mm -hmm. but then that legal, that legal precedent yeah. to say that there are certain things that shared on so social media kill people. And I think we've got a very prescient example of it. I mean, the problem is you don't have a, you know, you don't, you don't have like a united narrative from the Republicans and Democrats that like, you know, that look, 220,000 people died because of misinformation, because you've got one party that's like, oh no, everything's fine, right? Because they don't want to get clobbered in the election. Um, and so maybe time has to pass on this, but you do have this very prescient example of where, where it starts to look a little more like fire in a crowded theater. Yeah. Or, or you look back at Pizzagate, right? At what point are the people who are saying that, the, that Hillary Clinton and George Soros have a pedophile ring in the basement of a pizza joint? At what point do they have some sort of legal liability for the people in the pizza parlor who got shot? Yeah. Um, and those will be the cases that if there is, you know, legislation often, legislation often well, always likes technology and a lot of industries try to get smart and regulate themselves a little bit before they need to be regulated externally. Um, Cause like, it's just a Pandora's box that, you know, any, any good CEO doesn't want opened on them. Um, and so if there's a path to legislation, it's that. Mm -hmm. um, there is a slippery slope mm -hmm. um, as soon as we decide, uh, as soon as we decide to do it, um, in part because it's so much harder to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. So like yelling fire in a crowded theater, it's case-by-case -case basis, right? Like a bunch of people panicked and it's like, who's the idiot that yelled fire? Okay, you, you come into court. Whereas like, whereas to really combat fake news, you can't go to court every single time. You have to have this like blanket smackdown um, and so you have to start deciding kind of ahead of time, minority report style, what type of stuff is super dangerous, what type of stuff start, might sound like fire in a crowded theater. Yeah. Um, and that's the place you get the slippery slope. And, um, I don't have a good answer for you, but I have now, I have now at least walked you through a few of the considerations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, on a, on a similar theme actually of this topic of sort of policies and, you know, how do we control or regulate or whatever, um, you know, who, who watches the watchmen when there are these censorship, you know, people or moderators or whatever you want to call them, you know, who, who's policing those people? Is right. there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh, the, so I have it, I, I, I'm not just, I'm not just drawing a blank. Um, I'm thinking about how to say it because the good news is, as, as I sort of mentioned, like this ain't the first time this has happened. Mm -hmm. So what is the, like who watches, who watched the watchmen of the newspapers and ABC, CBS, NBC? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, disclaimer before I answer that is faith has been lost, okay. right? And has faith been lost? You know, like half the country thinks the New York Times is fake news, right? Yeah. Which like, I don't. Um, but, uh, but the whole thing about credibility is that you can't argue, if someone's like, I don't find this credible, you can't say like, no, you don't find it incredible. Like, of course they find it incredible. So if, I, so if it's like, oh, half the country doesn't trust the New York Times, like that's true whether I think that's a justified position or not. And, um, and so we have, we have, we've had doubt emerging about the 
about the um, the current process, the current editorial process that I'm talking about. Um, but that might actually play into play a little bit into what I'm about to say, which is as network news and you know more established editorial board newspapers came out, the people who watched The Watchmen, dare I say, were in fact the consumers. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Um, it's these editorial processes emerged um, emerged you know during this time of yellow journalism when people were sick of misinformation. Mm -hmm. uh, like arguably yellow journalism was part of what got us into the Spanish-American War. And we learned what kind of after like Gulf of Tonkin style, like sinking of the main, right? And like Gulf of Tonkin style learned afterward, like that may not have been a necessary war. Um, and people were kind of cranky about it. And you, you and you also had like um uh sorry uh not fdr teddy roosevelt um at the bully pulpit like like at the one hand praising the muckrakers and then the other hand like like shaking his cane at the um uh at you at yellow journalists and uh -huh. and so you had this kind of like popular like this popular distrust of media and and you had this kind of competitive scramble for trying to create a media source that you can trust and so ultimately it was like advertising was the transparency mechanism where these media, these, these uh, newspapers were like, hey, you can trust us because we do this. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them were regional at the time. So it was actually very easy for them to create a, get some authority through having like a unified nationwide system where they're like, we all follow this. So like the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Miami Herald, all these guys we do this okay. um, in order to preserve this. And, and, and they advertise it heavily in order to like rise above, rise above the chaff and, and crush competition. Right. And that's why they did it, was to, was to beat out competition and win, win market share. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Mm -hmm. So could you do the same thing now where like Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, they, they are able to advertise and publish a form of transparency about their methodology. Um, uh, you know, and it's and part of what was so important about the journalistic standards was like publishing corrections and stuff like that. Like they copped up when they were wrong, and it built a lot of credibility and trust, right? Because um, uh, if you're like, hey, this is BS, you write to the editor, and the editor talks about it if it's interesting. Um, anyway, so can Facebook and um, Facebook and Twitter um, can they do something like that? Probably. Um, they've got a lot of smart, well-paid people thinking about this, and. Um, and I think they're fighting for their lives right now. So I think they're going to err on the side of trying to rebuild credibility. Um, and I think the American consumer is going to, or the global consumer at this point, um, is going to be the watcher of the Watchmen. Right, right. Okay, so it's on us then, sounds like, huh? <laughs> it's on us, the users, all right. I know, it's so much easier when you can just like, like it's one of the things I kind of hate about every four years we vote. It's like, oh, if this one person is in office, Right, that that I'm really excited about. Like everything's gonna be fine, and I don't have to do anything. It's like it's good enough true. and it's and it's gonna be the case for fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah, constant vigilance, as they say in Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So actually, yeah, we have another audience question that's related to what we were just speaking about, um, cool. which is the you know sort of what happens or what's the next evolution of the technology platforms for distributing information. This person would like to know, um, can advancement of technology for widely and easily distributing information be stifled by requiring these standards for posts on social media? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah certainly. And, and so I think we're, 
you know, one of the problems with fact checking is that you have two options to do it. One of them is people, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and one of them is AI. Yeah. And um, you know, the people will not be able to keep up long term. Like right now, the people who are doing independent fact checking, they're being very selective. There's a lot of human judgment involved in it. You know, and they try, and and it's technology supported, right? When we, when you know, when like we find, when we decide, like, okay coronavirus is a hoax and nobody's really dying from it is is a thing that we're going to stifle we can actually like configure the tech to like help find other articles that are doing the same thing mm -hmm. um but um uh but the the uh yeah so like but but a, a in particular if you get regulation involved um i don't think it's doomed i don't think it's like functionally doomed that regulation would stifle the development of of social media technologies but it's like practically doomed just because regulators regulators will like will never get it right um i mean think like gdp like anyone who's in consumer tech like you hear gdpr you're like oh, right because because it's just so like well-intentioned and like very frustrating in a lot of ways and stifling yeah. um and is that a trade-off that we want to accept i don't know is there a way to do it without stifling it um all I will, all I will counter is I don't have again I don't have an answer, but all I will counter with is like a potential, um, it's like a potential. There are like potential counter arguments to that. So I remember, um, I remember reading about the history of the seatbelt, and like the seatbelt just did not emerge without legislation, mm. and like it's kind of crazy that yeah. you know like you'd normally think again I'm 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 you know I've, I've studied like market economics a lot, and you'd think like this this kind of effect that I'm talking about, where like, oh, people will demand it, so it will happen. With something as simple as an effing seatbelt, you think it would happen, and it didn't. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, and, you know, economists still argue over why with this case study, right? People who are not economists would be like, well, see, car, automate, you know, capitalists are evil, and they don't care about people. And of course, um, they're sort of morally neutral or they're amoral and they don't care about people but like why didn't demand for seatbelts make them build the thing and I've, i'll pay you 50 more dollars to have seatbelts right um why didn't that happen very it's a it's a there there's no like accepted standard yeah so what that means is like will we necessarily see a repeat of having like a good smooth process um to to censor mm -hmm. um you know, social media posting that doesn't, you know, kick the industry in the knees. I don't know. Yeah. And, um, uh, oh, right. Yeah. My point was, um, my point was the, the sort of counter argument is that um, it also didn't kill the car industry, right? So there's a lot of regulation out there that, that I think like kind of the, the default, you know, default, like left-wing narrative ideas, like, Corporations are all evil, and if we don't regulate them, they will like do bad stuff and get away with it because consumers are useless, or, or you know, market forces, yeah. you know, like the, the like consumer choice isn't really a good a good factor in in who wins. And mm -hmm. the standard right wing answer is like all regulation is crippling, uh, or regulation is necessarily crippling and it's necessarily stifling in a meaningful way. Um, and uh, you know, sort of like everything's always at the margins. And if you regulate it, you put its existence at risk. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things to keep in mind is that, um, is that there's so much money in Facebook and Twitter. And I don't mean to say like soak them because they're rich, um, but they're not marginal businesses. Uh -huh. And I think what that means is that, um, and they just, they even have just a lot of cash on hand. Uh -huh. 
Um, and I think what that means is that if we, in this particular case, right, it's always contextual, right? In this particular case, this industry, if there ends up being some sort of smart regulation around um, you know, censorship of fake news that I cannot imagine right now what it looks like. I can't, I can't devise what it looks like, but if it, if it emerges, is it going to be costly? Yes. Will they be able to throw money at this problem um, about how to adapt and how to evolve nonetheless? I think so. Yeah. Um, I would I wouldn't worry about like the demise or or it probably wasn't even the question, but I wouldn't worry about like a kind of a catastrophic blow to the industry at all. Sure, sure. Yeah, they will they will adapt, they will hire more lawyers likely, and then they will <laughs> so okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so we we have maybe about a handful of minutes left. I you know, I think we're gonna Oh geez, okay. Yeah, I know it's been that fun that we've already gotten to <laughs> to the through the second half, almost to the last, through the last quarter. Um, but we we do have a couple of questions actually on deep fakes. Um, I, for one, was very startled by that um, image of the Nixon video that you showed us. And I will definitely be going back and researching and watching that. Um, it's haunting, haunting. Yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so deep fakes, as you alluded to, uh, are definitely, the next, I don't know if they're the next generation or frontier or if it's already here and we're just, you know, now living in that world. Um, but uh, I think maybe this is a, it's a topic in and of itself. And then there's two parts of a question. Hmm. First is, oh my gosh, what do we do? Are we doomed? <laughs> and then um, the second part, second part of a question, and we can break this down further, is uh, an audience member would like to know, um, the volume of information is exponentially greater than it was in print media times. So to regulate, one might think that only AI can do this job. Do you think AI will always be able to tell the difference between fake and real, especially as deep fakes get better and better? So yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, uh, the projecting, so so I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a nerd about Futurist historiography, and okay. and those words together mean I like to study how people tried to predict the future in the past. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. it's fun. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons fun is like just the awesome ways they're wrong, right. right? And you start to wonder like what, like you know, everything. We're always on a squiggly line, but every time when we zoom in to like our view, it looks like a straight line, right? right? Everyone's taking calculus, right? So it looks like it's a straight line, even though it's on a curve. And um, sorry, I, I don't know if everyone's taking calculus, but I'm thinking like you and gang and the other MIT crowd, right? We've all taken calculus. And we know that like you zoom in close enough, a curve looks like a straight line. Now and so, we what yeah. <laughs> yeah. so what happens is we feel like we're on this straight line and we project it out and we go like, okay, like Black Mirror does this, right? Black Mirror looks super compelling, but like every single, and I think you might have to be a futurist historiography nerd to, to really be able to do this, but like every single one of their premises is like deeply flawed in all sorts of ways because it says we're only going to change one variable in an extreme way and nothing else is going to change or adapt around it and there's gonna be no time for us to like you know kind of integrate this into our lives and wouldn't it and isn't this and if we did that wouldn't it be terrible and you're like yeah it is terrible but it's not interesting yeah um and uh the reason i bring that up is i would just want to be very cautious about predicting too far into the future mm. Um, just because I will be wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I will, I, whatever I predict will set, will fundamentally be wrong. Yeah. But here's what I think. Um, 
So the good news about deepfakes in the short term uh -huh. is, um, and I'll get to AI as a whole. Um, the good news about deepfakes in the short term is that um, it just turns out like raw footage and deepfaked footage, they have such different artifacts in the code that it's pretty easy to spot right now. There's actually, I even forget what it's called, but you can look up like deepfake, like, like, is my video a deepfake on Google? And like, there's a website that's like, give me your video, I'll tell you if it's a deepfake. Wow, okay. Um, right now it's fairly simple. Mm. And it's because um, even with AI, the thing is at any given moment, or like AI, right? Like at any given moment, what is happening is a single set of algorithms are being applied to a thing, okay. right? Um, and uh, now can, so this is the part where I just don't want to predict, can AI get so crazy complex that it can fool other AI, right? Like can God build, can God make something so heavy that God himself cannot lift it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, but what we do have is a cat and mouse game, Yeah. right? Um, and we've seen this a little bit with social media, right? Like these social media companies are trying to keep up with like, you know, Russian interferers. Um, and uh, so it is a cat and mouse game and it will be a cat and mouse game with different kinds of AI. Mm -hmm. As soon as AI gets really interesting and it starts like running away with itself, right? And it's not waiting on humans to improve it. Pff, all bets are off, right? Don't even try to predict what's going on. There. Yeah. But in the meantime, um, so we can catch deep fakes. Um, and so I think it's not so much a technological adaptation as a societal habitual ad adaptation to start to develop, like probably more people use Snopes now than ever before. And this is good, mm -hmm. right? And Snopes is still mostly human powered. Um, but like you see something you're like, that seems weird. Yeah. I'm gonna Snopes that, yeah. right? And you're like, oh, right, it's not real. Or shockingly it is. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a societal adaptation. Um, and like, God bless the people at Snopes, but, but like, we're starting to do that now because we're starting to get a little sick. Mm. We're starting to get sick of it. Mm. And it's our own sickness of it that makes us willing to put in some effort. Yeah. Um, same thing is going to happen with deep fakes. I think very quickly, deep, I think deep fakes are going to happen much faster um, and they're going to shake us to our core. Again, go watch this video because yeah. one of the things that like, you have a conversation with like, just say like, you know, you're, you're like uncle who really likes Trump. They're like, oh yeah, Trump said, um, you know, Mexico isn't sending its best people. It's sending, uh, it's sending criminals and rapists. It's like, he never said that. It's like, hey, here's a video of Trump saying it. It's like, okay, well he said it, but right. And that's the conversation you have. He immediately goes, I saw the video. I believe that he said it now. I thought it was fake news until I saw the video. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a, there's a brave new world where you go like, well, here's a video of Trump saying that, um, you know, Actually, I really, uh, really support Medicare for all and the Green New Deal, yeah. right? And you're like, that seems weird. Is that a deep fake, mm -hmm. right? And, and it'll be so easy to create those um, and they'll proliferate so fast that we will like suddenly lose, we will very quickly, like mark my words on this day, you heard it from me, October 28th, 2020, like in a few years, you could be like, we can't fucking trust video that we see online anymore. Right. Um, what do we need? We need a clearinghouse, a technology enabled clearinghouse for us to be able to say like, is this video real, yeah. right? And either check ourselves or only consume video yeah. from those kind of platforms. YouTube is probably gonna have to have a deep fake alarm, right? And it's probably not that hard in the short term. So it might be okay, um, except for like, again, grandma who like doesn't know how to use the deep fake alarm and stuff like that. So it will be disruptive. Um, I think that I think technology will be able to help us. It's gonna be a societal change. In terms of just like the scale of things and is AI going to be necessary to sort out truth from fiction? 
here is the we start to get into all sorts of like kind of ethical philosophical problems of like what is truth really um and you know how much is a representation of something like how much are you allowed to are you allowed to and who decides right um that your representation of something is uh either true or false so for example like there's the great barrington declaration that is out and i think it is like i've done the math on it i my personal opinion is that it is like irresponsible to have published such a thing and for those who don't know the gb the declaration is encouraging herd immunity for like everyone under the age of 60 to do with the coronavirus and i'm like this is insane like i did the back of the envelope math like i think hospitals would be overflowing and and um uh and uh you know and just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of more people die and like ugh. and and i was frustrated with them that they didn't publish any data to back it up but the, but my point about this is that is the great barrington declaration a form of saying fire in a crowded building because it tells people like, oh, get herd immunity, that's good, right? When it could get people, when I think it could get people killed um, or is it, you know, your right to have a position, right? Even if you're wrong, even if you're catastrophically wrong. Um, and, uh, and so we actually have to like start leaning back on philosophers, right. like old logic philosophers, or not, sorry, not logic philosophers, but like epistemological philosophers and like Bertrand Russell, Okay. Um, and guys like that, as a like, we have to have some sort of value system that we plug into this thing, or this like agree to epistemology um, about what is real, what is truth, what is opinion, and um, uh, that is not at all clear on first blush. In order for an AI to be able to do this unsupervised, right. Right. Um, those decisions would be very impactful should they happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all I got. I'm, I'm so, so sorry, no answers, but, uh, but hopefully, hopefully the chaos that I just added to the question is at least interesting. Yeah, no, no need to apologize. I mean, the world being what it is, is uh, <laughs> chaotic uh, to begin with and probably will be that way for a while. Um, but. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You think it's crazy now. You yeah. remember, well, not 2020, but you will remember like 2019 is the good day, like, like the good right. days when things were sinful, also right. inevitable. Right, right. We're gonna look back and be like, those were five, you know, five years from now. Watch yeah, all we had to worry was Russian bots. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Ugh, boy. Um, well, you took us on a journey, and I love, and I think uh, our audience clearly loved it too. We had really good engagement and some. I love the questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much, audience members, for tuning in and and watching. And and Eric, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated it. I am sad that we have to end this now actually because you know we we have an hour together but uh i will ask again maybe part two is in the works <laughs> I, I, already, I already think i know what i want it to be okay okay awesome awesome but for tonight um that that's all we have and um we really appreciated your time we appreciate your tuning in from home and stay safe wherever you are um great to have you eric and uh have a good night everybody thanks for well, watching and send me gang Thank you so much for hosting. Um, you know, you, look, you guys, you guys, this doesn't happen without you guys at all, obviously. Um, uh, like, you know, just, just, I was teed up really well, made it really easy. Um, I love the forum series as a whole. You guys get, you guys get some like really great, interesting folks. Um, thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's going to turn into a thank you fest. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, good to, good to see you, Eric. We will hopefully catch you again um, in the future, but really appreciated it. So. You got it. Good night, everyone. Go vote. Stay safe. Yes. Good night. Go vote. Stay safe. Bye.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.